Tonight we're in Genesis chapter 14. And uh, we're going to talk about passing the, uh, the test of success tonight from the life of Abraham. Uh, for those of you that journey with us regularly on Wednesday night, we had been in a series from Genesis in the second quartile of the book of Genesis, which deals with the life of the great patriarch of the Jewish faith, which is, of course, Abraham. We interrupted that so that I could do some leadership training for six or eight weeks. And so tonight we're going to return. Hopefully, you'll remember the narrative. Abraham was basically a moon-worshiping pagan for most of his life until the Lord called him. And he took him out of his homeland of Ur in the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq. And he called him to go to a new land and a new place, promising, of course, to make him a great nation whose progeny would number beyond the number of stars in the sky and the number of grains of sand on the seashore. And the Bible says Abraham went out on faith. He is considered to be the father of the faithful, the greatest exemplar of faith that you'll find anywhere in the Bible. He's commended in the 11th chapter of Hebrews as a man who so trusted God that he went out following the voice of God, not knowing where he was going. He didn't follow the Lord perfectly, and he made some mistakes along the way. But Abraham is a model of great faith, and we'll continue to see that as his life is unpacked before us here in these early chapters of the book of Genesis. Abraham would have failures in his life, but he also had a life that was marked by multiple successes. And you know, success uh, can be a great teacher in life. Some people experience a great success in life only to build on that success and become more successful. Some people are committed to integrity so that their success is something that becomes a positive in their life upon which greater successes can be built. Other people, as you well know, experience success and um, it corrupts them. It does something to them to change them. It causes them to become prideful and egocentric, perhaps even arrogant. I read a book, a business book, not long ago by Jim Collins, the title of which was How the Mighty Have Fallen. And it took several companies and kind of did biographical sketches on these companies who experienced great success over time, shooting to the top of their respective markets with great leadership, great profitability, only to have something happen in the wake of their success that caused them to fall from grace, as it were. And it analyzed the causes of those incredible falls. Uh, someone said one time, and I don't remember who it was, that the greatest threat to tomorrow's success can be today's success. And this is precisely the challenge that's posed to our friend Abraham, who has a marked time of success here in Genesis chapters 13 and 14 in the wake of a great military victory. The last lesson on Abraham that we shared together a few weeks ago had to do with Abraham's military victory over this coalition of enemy kingdoms who had come together to raid the city of Sodom. 
And as a part of that raid, they took Lot, who was Abraham's nephew, together with his family, and they journeyed with all of that plunder north. Well, Abraham finds out that his kinfolk had been kidnapped. He doesn't cotton well to that. And the Bible says that he takes 318 of his own men who are basically semi-trained mercenaries. And they head north, hightailing it toward this coalition army. They're badly outnumbered. This is a professional army, actually four professional armies that they're going up against. But Abraham deems it to be a worthy effort because he wants to go and rescue his family, his nephew and his nephew's wife and all of his great nieces and nephews and their children. And so uh, he goes and there's a great victory. And that was the last thing that we talked about. And tonight we kind of come and we see what happens in the wake of that victory because Abraham's marvelous time of success is met with an immediate test of faith. Really, in the wake of this victory, Abraham is faced with a choice that's not altogether different than the choice that Lot faced some years earlier when they were living together as clans on land that could not support both families. And you'll remember Abraham goes to his younger nephew and he says, look, we, we can't live here in the same geographic region together. Somebody's going to have to make a choice. Uh, you're going to have to go over there, and I'm going to have to stay here. Or you're going to have to stay here, and I'm going to have to go over there somewhere because this land can't sustain both of our expanding families. And so Abraham, in an act of incredible deference because he was the superior, he was the tribal leader, but he defers to his nephew, and he gives his nephew the choice. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. You go to the left, I go to the right. But I'm going to defer, and I'm going to give you the choice. And Abraham, of course, looks around, and the grass seemed to be greener over on the plains of what? Of Sodom. And that's going to end up being the worst choice like in ancient history. But that's where he goes. Have you ever heard it said the grass isn't always greener on the other side? Well, that was going to prove to be true in an extreme kind of way for Lot and his family. But he goes and Abraham stays right where he is. And in the same way now, Abraham on the back end of this incredible military victory is faced with a choice. And in that choice, the temptations are going to be very great. Have I told you all before that if you're a person of faith, walking after Jesus Christ, that God will test your faith. God will test your faith early, and God will test you. I have said it before, and often, and you never need to forget it. I've told people before, people come into my office all the time, and God's testing their faith. It's an incredible test of faith. And I'll look at them and say, you know what? You're going to make it, but this won't be the last time God tests your faith. And God's going to test Abraham's faith yet again here. And it's those kinds of tests, those that typically come early in your walk with the Lord, but also those kinds of tests that tend to come in the wake of some kind of victory in your life. And the reason those types of tests often come in the wake of great victory is because that's typically when we can be the most vulnerable. And that's the case here. Let's look at the text beginning in verse 17. Genesis 14, 
and 17. Everybody ready to read? Say amen. amen. After his return from the defeat of Kedarlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Honor, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. Now, take a look again at verse 21, because this is where the test comes into play, where the Bible says that the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, in other words, give me the people, the inhabitants of my city that used to be here, that were carted away to be taken off into exile, presumably into slavery by those who conquered us. Give me the persons back. Give me my citizenry back. But you take the goods for yourself. Now, because Abraham was the victor, by right, everything that he had actually belonged to him. He didn't have to give anything back if he didn't want to. The king of Sodom, of course, had lost all of those possessions and lost all of his people to the other kings who had in turn been conquered by Abraham and lost all of that stuff to Abraham. And the king of Sodom here wants his stuff back. He'd like to have it all back, but he realizes that the law is not on his side and he realizes that Abraham's probably got a pretty good fighting force and he doesn't have virtually any army left. And so he realizes that beggars can't be choosers, and so he's willing to compromise to try to get as much back as he possibly can. And so he says, here's the deal. You give me the residence, you can keep the riches, and I'll be fine with that. And, I mean, sounds to me like a pretty good deal. I mean, I don't know that I'd want all those people to have to deal with, but the riches would be a pretty cool thing, right? Just stockpile those, save that up for retirement one day, right? Pass it down to the grandkids, leave a legacy for your family. Sound like a pretty good deal. And I think it was a very subtle temptation for Abraham because it involved great wealth. And may I say it again tonight, few things will cause more spiritual conflict and few things will serve as a source of spiritual temptation more than money and the things that money can buy. All of us in here tonight should be well aware of how often our Lord Jesus Christ and those who wrote the New Testament epistles, for that matter, warned against the temptation of greed. 
Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke, for example, be on your guard against covetousness and all forms of greed, for a man's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. And so the king of Sodom is actually playing to one of the most significant sources of temptation in any person's life, and that is the temptation to embrace great wealth. And had Abram bought into that temptation, he would have compromised not only his own character, he would have dishonored the very God who was responsible for giving him the victory in the first place. So that's the test of success here. In the wake of this great military victory, what will Abraham do? And I want to raise the question, how do you pass the test of success when it comes your way, how do you make sure you don't lose your character in the process? How can you make sure you keep your character rather than having your character corrupted in times of personal, spiritual, financial success? Well, I want you to notice tonight three things in Abram's life that enabled him to stand strong in the wake of great personal success. These are three words I'm going to write down, three things that are very important. They actually are spiritual disciplines, and you've got to have them. The first is worship. Worship. Abram passed the test of success because he never failed to direct his worship singularly toward the presence of God. He fellowshiped with God. Look at verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, Brought, this is in the wake of the victory, the wake of the military victory. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram. Now remember, Abram had chased those guys all the way up to the region of Dan. You've heard the expression, from Dan to Beersheba? Well, that's basically the geographic boundaries of the nation of Israel. Dan is the farthest kingdom to the north, Beersheba, basically the farthest city to the south. And Abram had chased those guys all the way up as far north as Dan. So he's coming back down. He's traveling south. And as he does, he passes a little village called Salem, right? And so you've heard that name before. We've got a lot of cities in America called Salem, probably the most famous, is in Massachusetts, famous for putting supposed witches on trial. Anybody know what Salem means in English? Anybody know? Box of Snickers candy bars, if you can answer correctly. Peace. Salem is is taken from the Hebrew word shalom. See, you're smarter than you think. How did you know that and you didn't know what Salem meant? I don't know. Shalom. Peace, right? Now, that little village of Salem would later become a great metropolis city called what? Jerusalem. That's right. So, Salem is Jerusalem, right? And so, here comes a guy out, this little village of Salem, and he meets Abraham carrying with him bread and wine. And he, he's got a name, Melchizedek, one of the most mysterious 
figures in the Bible. You find him mentioned three times in Scripture. Where are the other two? Oh, great Bible scholars. Well, one of them's tucked away in Psalms, but the other is where? In Hebrews, which we spent like 25 years studying in here not long ago, thanks to Carolyn, right? That was a great study. Um, but yes, he's got a whole chapter pretty much devoted to him in the letter to the Hebrews. And you know, I run across a lot of personalities in life every day that are that kind of hard personalities to get your arm around. Sometimes people are hard to figure out, and this is one of them. He's a mysterious figure. And uh, the Bible says, for example, in Hebrews 7, beginning in verse 2, he is first, by translation of his name, king of what? King of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. <clears throat> he is without father or mother, without genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, He continues as a priest forever. Now, I'm not going into a deep biography of Melchizedek. We did that in the Hebrew studying, so you can go back and look that up online if you're interested. But Melchizedek is kind of a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, when we ask the question, who is this man that just appears out of nowhere, we know a few things about him. We know he's a king, and we know he's a priest. That sounds like Jesus to me, king of kings, lord of lords. You read all through the book of Hebrews, he's described as what kind of high? The great high priest, superior high priest in heaven. Uh, we know about Melchizedek that his name involves concepts of righteousness, and peace, that sounds a lot like Jesus. We know there's no genealogical record, no beginning, no ending. Sounds like kind of an eternal being to me. That sounds like Jesus to you. In fact, he serves in bread and wine, the body and the blood. So you got this guy that has all these characteristics that are directly applied in the New Testament to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it sounds very much like him. In fact, some scholars have suggested that that is Jesus. They say that's a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't agree with that. I think this man is a legitimate figure, but I don't think it's Jesus because the language in the letter to the Hebrews makes it very clear that he's a distinct figure from Jesus. Uh, he's just a type of Christ. He points to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's an image of the Redeemer that the Old, Testaments had, uh, the Old Testament saints had before them to see and to experience and to look forward to. So everything about this man called Melchizedek points to the coming of a Savior who would have many of the same qualities of this very person. Just as he was a priest representing God to man and man to God, that's Jesus, our high priest, our advocate who's seated at the right hand of God, pleading our case, the case of hopeless sinners in the presence of God the Father. And just as Melchizedek was a king of a place called Peace, whose name means righteousness, 
In fact, that's what the word Melchizedek means. It's, two, it's a compound word. It's two Hebrew words scrunched together to make one. The Hebrew word for king is the word melech. And the Hebrew word for righteousness is sadiq. Melech Sadiq, Melchizedek. And so the concepts have everything to do with peace and righteousness. Well, that's Jesus. He's described in Isaiah as the Prince of Peace. And Jesus, of course, becomes our righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Him, Christ, who had no sin, to become sin for us, that in Him we might become the what? the righteousness of God. And just as Melchizedek had no genealogical beginning or ending, what does the Bible say about Jesus in the book of Revelation? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was, the one who is, and the one who is to come. All of those are statements of eternality. No beginning, no ending, absolutely infinite, in his personality. And so, and even in addition to all of that, in the same way we take bread and wine today, whenever we take the bread and the wine of communion today, what we call the Lord's Supper, we take that bread and that wine, which is a very representation of the person of Jesus Christ in our midst and in our lives. And when we take that, we look backwards 2,000 years to an event called the cross. Well, what you have here in Genesis 14 is a foreshadowing of that, where that same bread and wine representative of the body and the blood of a Savior is given to Abraham. The only difference is the body and the blood that was given doesn't point back to a cross as it does today. Then it pointed forward to a cross But the meaning is exactly the same. We look back, Abram looked forward, but what's represented in that blood and in that, or in that wine and in that uh, bread is the blood atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary. Now, having said all of that, in the wake of this great victory, I don't think it's coincidental at all that Melchizedek makes this first appearance, that he comes to Abram as a priest, offering him bread. This is a picture of worship. It's the Lord's Supper is worship. And he gives him words that amount to kind of a short sermon. And I think God sent him there. I think in large part because he knew the temptation that was to come. And it was this fundamental experience of worship, of fellowship, of communion that I think prepared Abram spiritually for this encounter with the king of Sodom that was about to take place. I don't know about you, but I never experienced the presence of God in a more worshipful manner than whenever we're taking the Lord's Supper as a church. I mean, I think the Lord's Supper is probably the most sacred thing we do as a people of God. Name me anything that's more sacred than entering into Calvary. There's nothing. And so this is a a picture of an intimate act of worship. 
And let me just say, if your character is going to remain intact, if you're going to stand tall and stand firm, it will be because nothing ever deters you from being in a constant state of active communion with the risen Christ. Absolutely nothing. You remember the story of Daniel, right? I mean, Daniel's life was just one success after another. He was a Jew living in exile, serving the Persian king, but he served him with honor. He served him with integrity. The Bible says Daniel's life was filled with exceptional qualities. He was a man marked by an exceptional spirit, and the king noticed that, and it made everybody around Daniel jealous. So much so that they tried to do him in. They, they, they undertook a sting operation to try to break him down and wear him down. And the Bible says that in the face of all of that, what did Daniel do? Kept doing what he'd done every day of his life. Three times a day, he'd go up to his room, kneel down by an open window that was facing Jerusalem. And what would he do? He would pray to God. He never divorced himself from active communion with Jesus Christ. And that's the way you maintain a life of personal character that's able to say no whenever temptation raises ugly head. Warren Buffett, the great entrepreneur, said one time, and we see it in the newspapers every day, it takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to lose it. And we're all, if we're not careful, can I just say it tonight? We're all just about a half a step short of stupid. And you better stay tight with Jesus. Because in a world full of temptation and compromise, on the radio, on television, on Netflix, on billboards, all over town, you can't get away from it. We're all just one step short of stupid. And the only way to assure and guarantee victory in the face of success or failure, for that matter, is to maintain an active, life-giving, worshipful relationship with God. Everybody with me say amen. And that's what Abram did. He worshiped the Lord. The second thing that you see in Abraham's life is generosity. Particularly when it came to how he handled his stuff. You worship God, you fellowship with God, but generosity means you give to God. And one of the bad things about success is it has this tendency to corrupt people, particularly when it's financial success. Did you know that the average person in America is more generous with their money the less money they make? The most generous people in America, the people that give away the most money, are those that tend to make $50,000 a year or less. And with each increment that you go up from that, Americans become more stingy. The more wealthier we get, the more stingy we become. That's the gospel truth. And as a result, that's the reason success has this corruptive tendency. Nothing appeals to pride like success. So when good things start to happen in a person's life, one of the unfortunate side effects, I think, is this tendency to think, you know, look what I did. I did that. I'm responsible for my success. I'm responsible for what I have. I'm responsible for who I am. This is how the nation of Israel would begin to think 
with each passing success of their life. And it's part of the reason why there's a great chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God forecasts this in the life of his people. He said, you know what, guys, I love y'all. Y'all are my chosen. But you're going you're gonna to begin to think too highly of yourself. You're going to have some great victories. And the thing about it is, I'm going to be the one to give you the victory. But you're, you're going to forget that. And you're going to begin to convince yourself that you did it all. When you didn't do jack, I did it all. And as a result, you're going to begin to think, boy, look at these vineyards that we planted. That's the thing about Spain. Olive groves. I've never seen so many olive trees in my life. Beautiful olive trees. And God told the nation of Israel, you're going to have land like that, and you're going to convince yourself that you did it, but they're not your trees. They're mine. And you're going to begin to think, well, we work this by the sweat of our, uh, sweat of our brow. And God says to them, yeah, that's true, but who gave you the physical health to get out and sweat? Who gave you life? Who gave you the property? Who gave you the ingenuity to know how to prune just right, to get a good crop and all that? And so God warned them, this is the way you're going to begin to think after a time of success. And that was certainly something that could have happened to Abraham. Success can breed selfishness. I've earned it, I've done it, and it's all mine. And whenever that happens, you have, brothers and sisters, you have failed the test of success. It's interesting here that in his encounter with Melchizedek, Abram actually learns a brand new name for God that he didn't know before. And that name for God that Amy Grant popularized back in the 1980s. How many of you remember Amy Grant? Would you say amen? All right. You remember the song El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El Elyona Adonai? Well, this is a new name El Elyon is the new name that Abraham learns for God as taught to him by Melchizedek. El Elyon, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And what that does, I think Melchizedek is reminding him here, dude, here's the thing. I don't want you to get too cocksure about yourself, and you're liable to, because let me tell you something that doesn't happen every day. A guy coming out of Ur of Chaldees that has never been trained in military tactics, taking 318 shepherds, plowsmen, and household stewards armed with sticks and clubs and knives. It doesn't happen every day that a guy like that with a ragtag bunch of mercenaries like that goes up against not one but four coalition-trained armies, and can I say it on Wednesday night, beats the snot out of them. And I know what you're liable to think. And so let me introduce you to a new name for God. God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And that was Melchizedek's way of saying do you really think you did that? Because you really didn't do that. There was a stronger force working behind you. And you do well never 
to forget. Because if God had it ever removed his hand from you in that ragtag band of yours, those Transjordanian armies would have ground you and your people into the Palestinian dust. And I think it was through this portion of continuing education about God that Abraham responds to Melchizedek and this little impromptu communion worship service the way that he does. What does Abraham do spontaneously on the spot? What does he do? Say it out loud. He tithes. How wild is that? Now, remember, he's got all this plunder. He's got a lot of stuff. And he makes this decision as, watch it. Are y'all still with me? Say amen. As a response of worship, he makes a decision to give a tenth of everything. And that's exactly what tithing is. Tithing is not a financial plan. It's not, a, a, it's not a, a, a letter of law, as so many people tend to say that it is. That's not true. That's wrong. Tithing is an act of worship, and tithing is a response to worship. It's not some perfunctory routine that's based on a set of rules or a set of laws or a set of regulations. Abraham didn't have any law. How many times have you all heard, well, tithing is a, that's just part of the Jewish law, right? So it's not binding on Christians. What law? The law was given through whom? Moses. Is Moses even alive now? Moses wouldn't be born for another 400 years. There was no Jewish law. There really wasn't any Jewish people. There was only a handful of them. There were no Ten Commandments. There was no Mosaic Covenant. There was no none of that. Abraham didn't have a law. He didn't have an Old Testament. This was a spontaneous response to the worship of God where he had an encounter with God through the man of God who gave him the Word of God. And in response, Abraham opens up his hands and he gives. That's why you can't walk around today saying, well, uh, tithing is a law. It's, it's out of date. Well, this predates the law. And it's not the only time it happens before the law ever comes into being as recorded in the Old Testament. So this is just something that comes from the heart. Abraham doesn't give because he has to. He doesn't have to. He gives because he what? Wants to. This is a heart deal, not a law deal. He gives from his heart. He recognizes that everything he has, and this is the principle of stewardship. Stewardship is just managing stuff that belongs to somebody else. And Abraham, remember, he gets introduced here to this new name for God, God Most High. And it's a reminder to him, you didn't do it. And by the way, you don't own it. All those men, they belong to God. All those families you rescued, they belong to God. All that plunder you rescued, that belongs to God. And so what's he doing? He's honoring God. And the Bible says in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16, 
God says, the one who honors me, I will what? I will honor. And that's exactly what happens here. So he lives with an open hand. Richard Foster, in his wonderful book, Celebration of Discipline, has a little quote in there, just simply this. He said, giving dethrones money. Giving dethrones money. How do you know that money is not your master? See, there's a big difference. Some people are mastered by their money. Some people master their money. And God wants you to master your money. And the only way not to be mastered by your money is to learn to be generous with it. To live open-handedly, as Corey Ten Boom used to say. To realize that all that stuff belongs to God. And you cannot give out, give God. Jesus said, give and it will be what? Given to you, a full measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So God just wants you to be a channel of blessing and to be faithful as you give. And as you do that, that helps keep the demon of pride and the demon of idolatry. Because truth be told, more people worship money and the things money can buy than anything else in the whole wide world. And the only way to keep money from becoming an idol is to learn to let it flow through your life so that you can be a blessing to God and a blessing to others by how you give it away. You don't have to give it all away because you've got to have money to live and you've got to have money to retire and you've got to have money to enjoy life. Everybody knows that. Nobody's going to argue against that. But you stay faithful and you give to God first because that recognizes where the money came from to begin with and it's an act of worship that demonstrates nothing is more important to me than the gospel that saved me and the God who made it possible. This is how you keep from failing the test of success. Everybody still with me so far? Amen? Let me give you one last thing, and then I'm going to turn you loose tonight. Worship, you fellowship with God, generosity, you give to God, and then finally, integrity. You trust God. Let me just ask you tonight, do y'all really trust God? I trust God, but sometimes more than others. And um, you know, one of the things that, that interests me about this story is its location, where it takes place. The Bible says in verse 17, the king of Sodom went out to meet. Now, he's already had this worship experience with Melchizedek, and he keeps on traveling south. And, uh, well, actually, he doesn't travel very far south. He's still in that area of Salem, modern-day Jerusalem. But he comes just south of the city to a place called the Valley of Shave, that is the King's Valley. Y'all know where that place is? I got a lot of Bible trivia going on tonight, don't I? Uh, there, there is a modern term for the Valley of Shave. Anybody know what it is? I mean, I'll, I'll raise the ante. I mean, we'll give a box of Godiva chocolates tonight. It's the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley. Remember that from the Gospels? Because... The, the Kidron Valley, when Jesus, on the night of the Lord's Supper with His disciples, 
uh, had the Last Supper that became the Lord's Supper. Then they went out singing a hymn. They walked through the city of Jerusalem, past the temple. I think they stopped there for a moment uh, because they're journeying to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives on the south side of Jerusalem. They're walking through the city. They pass the temple. That's where I think they stopped, and Jesus had that discussion that's recorded in John 15 uh, about the vine and the branches. Abide in me, and I in you. If a man abides in me, and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. They have that dialogue about abiding in Christ. And then they leave the gates of the city on their way to the Mount of Olives. But before you can get over here to the Mount of Olives, you've got to go through a steep valley and then come back up, and that is the Valley of Shaveh, which is known in the New Testament period as the Kidron Valley or the Valley of Blood. And that's where on the Day of Atonement in the temple, they had a drainage system where all that animal blood would drain out of the temple. All that blood from all those animals that all those families were bringing to the temple on the Day of Atonement had to go somewhere. I'm talking about gallons and gallons and gallons of blood. It didn't just stay in the temple. It would have inundated everything in the temple. It had to drain out. That's where it drained. And you can walk down into that valley today. I walked it. It's a steep walk down and a steep walk back up. To the garden. And so the location here is an interesting one. The very place that our Lord Jesus faced his greatest test is the very place that Abram finds himself potentially the victim of a deceitful scheme by the king of Sodom. It's a very subtle one because remember. The king's trying to coax Abraham to get as much back from him as he can. So he makes a deal with him. You return my people, I'll concede the material things to you. And that was a very real temptation, I think. But because he's fresh off of this intense experience of worship with God, and we know it was intense because it moved Abram uh, Abram to give significant proceeds to God as a response. And it was that act of worship that keeps him a man of integrity who trusted God. Now, again, by all rights, all that spoil belonged to Abraham. But what would have happened as a result of this barter that the king is trying to to, 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 to make with him. You just keep the proceeds. What would have happened if Abraham had kept that stuff? Well, he would have been beholden to the king. The king would have gone around saying, well, you know what? That man, he became wealthy, but he became wealthy because I allowed him to keep all of stuff that belonged to me. He's going around claiming how great God is. It isn't anything having to do with God. I'm the one that made him wealthy. And Abraham was smart enough to know it. 
That would have robbed God of the glory and the majesty of that great military victory. And what Abraham does here is really remarkable. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. And then he repeats this name that he just learned. God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. And watch this. He gives it all back. Every bit of it, he gives back. Man, I'm telling you, that's a man after God's heart right there. That's a man of integrity. That's a man who trusted God. I'm telling you, it takes a big man to give that kind of wealth away. you got to really have a massive trust in God to take what most people would define as the absolute source of security, capital, and just release it to the wind. And it's another sign that money wasn't as important to Abram as God was important and money wasn't as important as his personal integrity. He served God and he trusted God more than his possessions. He held all things loosely. And I repeat what Jesus said in Luke 12. That's a good lesson for all of us. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If the world can claim a significant part of the success of your life, then your testimony is pretty meaningless, I think, to God. And it doesn't make much difference in the world. But when your testimony is wrapped up in God alone, when you give all the glory and all the credit to God as Abram did here, you give credit to God for the big successes, you give credit to God for the little wins, then God is honored and your witness makes a difference in people's lives. Are you prepared to pass the test of success? The way you do it is by learning to worship God, live generously, and never Corrupt your integrity by bowing down to the idol of money or anything else for that matter. Worship God who is the creator and the possessor of heaven and earth. Honor him and he will always honor you. This is God's word and let all who agree with it say amen.